Hello, this is Rick Millenthal, and welcome to Voices of Resilience. In this series, we highlight personal journeys of thought leaders through adversity and trauma to find resilience and hope. Today marks the beginning of the National Drug and Alcohol Awareness Week. So we have two wonderful leaders in the field from The Ohio State University. Dr. Julie Teeter, director of Talbot Hall, that's Ohio State's Drug and Alcohol Treatment Center, and a member of Governor Mike DeWine's Recovery Ohio Advisory Council, and Mohammed Moizadeh, the clinical director of Talbot. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. For sure, thank you. My wife and co-producer Karen is joining us as a co-host. And, you know, this is actually a subject that's dear to our hearts and has touched us like it's touched many families throughout the world. And I think we want to start just by asking each of you, if there was one message that you hope would be conveyed on this podcast today, or one message that you hope people hear during this week, what would it be? I think that probably the most important message we can convey is that there really is hope. There are good treatments that work and um, that for patients and families and loved ones, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and a path forward. I would agree. You know, when, when you hear the word addiction or an addict, it's got this really... Or for me, it's a tough thing to hear because it's got such negative connotation. And I can tell you that people do get better when they're in recovery. And I want to focus on the word recovery because it's just, it's, there's hope, there's healing, and people do get better. And it's a lifelong process that you have to actively work. But yes, there's hope. I so love that you want to focus on the recovery, not the addiction. Because if you look at the title of the week, it's awareness, not addiction. As Rick said, you know, this is a very personal story for us. I'm the oldest of four children and my youngest brother struggled after my parents divorced when he was a teenager, all kinds of addictions that finally led to heroin addiction. But he's been in recovery for the last 10 years. So we personally know that there's hope. And I'm going to ask both of you, you know, what makes somebody able to drink, you know, two drinks and stop and somebody else become an alcoholic? There's definitely a combination. Clinically, we usually call them risk factors, but for any given addiction, probably about half is a genetic predisposition. The other half is usually a combination of, again, clinically we call individual factors and environmental factors. And you think about most households, I'm looking outside my window right now with the homes that are in my vicinity. I wonder if we go and open up their refrigerators, if we're going to find a six pack of beer in there. Just look around. It's the norm and it's an acceptable thing by society. The difference is for that alcoholic versus the one that's not is that when the alcoholic takes that one or two drink, there's a chemical reaction that takes place in their brain that is not necessarily the same for a person that's not in active addiction. Well, that's because their brain function is different. But outwardly, they look the same, so family members struggle with that. Because they just look like you and me, like everybody else. Well, look the same on the outside. It's what's on the inside. 
But one other thing I do want to mention that goes along with what Muhammad was saying is earlier age of exposure, definitely. Um, so like younger at, say, first drink, that definitely plays a role as well. Um, and that has to do with brain development. So your prefrontal cortex is basically your uh, decision-making center. And that's not fully formed until you're about 25. I've got two little kids and we talk a lot about that, Dr. Teeter. I, I talk in different terms and I call them Lego pieces. And I say that, you know, the front of your brain's like Legos and it's got, you need to add more pieces and it won't get there until, until mid twenties. And those Lego pieces need to add on and we need to make sure that those pieces get put on the right way. And if you start using drugs and alcohol early on, they go on kind of crooked. And it's something that my kids can kind of latch on to. Mohammed, when you talked about alcohol, is it similar for drug addiction or is alcohol an animal like on its own? What I know is that they do hit different parts of the brain. I believe that working with folks in our program if you go about treating the, the, let's say, the opiate use disorder individual the same as the alcohol use disorder individual, you're going to miss the boat because we, we did that originally. We had everyone in there together and we thought that you could treat addiction as addiction. And it's not necessarily true. Yeah, the cycle can be similar. As it, Muhammad's absolutely right. It acts on different receptors, but when it gets to sort of that dopamine surge and the addiction cycle, um, they can be similar. And so what that means is someone who is, uh, you know, say has alcohol use disorder and is in recovery, if they are exposed to another addictive substance, say, opiates later in life after an injury, they can be at risk for then developing opiate use disorder. So different substances can set off the same cycle. And we usually talk about that as like cross addiction. Um, and, and we've definitely seen that people who were in recovery, say from alcohol 20 years, but then have, have an injury, have a surgery, get prescribed opiates. And then, you know, they're, more likely to then go on and develop an addiction to the new substance. You know, we, we talk about Ohio being at the forefront of kind of opioid addictions. Yeah, we absolutely are at the top or towards the top of lists you do not want to be at the top of. Um, so, you know, our, our overdose death rate, um, we've been in the top five for the last several years. You know, I think there's a few theories about why, given our makeup, right? So we know addiction sometimes is referred to as one of the diseases of despair, right? And so as things get worse socioeconomically, that can be, can be part of it. And then a, a big part of it is the, the drug composition. So we have seen in Ohio huge spikes in the amount of fentanyl that is in our drug supply, particularly our opiate supply, but also like our cocaine and stimulant supply. And so what that means is that, uh, you know, it has a much higher risk of overdose. I was going to ask, actually, 
Next, if you've seen a difference during this past year of, you know, COVID and lockdown, has it, you know, do you think people are hiding things more or are you seeing more people, especially at Talbot? Yeah, it's been a very interesting year. You know, about a year ago when we were at our strictest point of lockdown, people were scared to come to the hospital. And so I think there's also this myth that drug treatment, alcohol treatment is voluntary and therefore less necessary. Um, May 2020 was the highest overdose month in Ohio to date. And so we really struggled with people aren't coming in and yet people are dying in huge numbers. And so um, that's actually when we partnered with some community organizations to actually go into the community. And we started doing Narcan distribution quite literally on, on street corners. We were able to give out Narcan kits, which are naloxone, which is the opiate overdose reversal drug, and get those into the hands of people that need them. Um, you know, we had people that we saw there that later came into treatment, and we also really got to see what was going on in the community. So we picked our places based on places people were already going. You know, more people were accessing food banks in the spring than had ever before. And throughout the city, you know, there were probably five, six organizations that all banded together, led by uh, Columbus Fire's Division of REACT. And we really all collaborated and, uh, and gave out, you know, thousands of Narcan kits across the city. And what I foresee is as things, you know, hopefully get normalized with this current situation, this is going to stick its head out again and people are going to be like, oh, wow. So there are people still dying from opiate use disorder. Well, yeah, they never stopped. And the suffering has gone on. It just became a more silent, deadly thing that people didn't talk about. And it's sad. It is sad. What inspired both of you to get into this field? Mm. So a little bit about my, my background. Um, I was actually born in Tehran, Iran. And if you recall back to the revolution of 1979 in Iran, um, basically, I was in Iran with my family one week. Things got really turned upside down. I remember distinctively my father saying, son, we have to leave and I'm going to take you somewhere else. And I was like, well, where are we going, dad? And, and he was like, you know, you're going to go to America. I believe it was December 26th, 1979. I was 11 years old. I got on an airplane within a week notice, and then we came to this uh, to this country. I, I couldn't speak uh, a word of English. Um, I knew nothing about where I was going and what was going to happen next. And basically, I came with my mom, and they they had some relationships with an, an American family that we were very fortunate to have. And they agreed to in essence become my legal guardians it was it was pretty emotional apart from that being separated from you know my mom and dad and my younger brother the 
the other thing that was going on was that there was a revolution and Iran had taken the U.S. hostages and their relationship had really deteriorated between the two countries. And imagine now you've got this Iranian kid that can't speak a lick of English in a school system where, you know, he looks different, he acts different. And they're like, wait, that's that Iranian guy. Well, it didn't go over too well. I was taunted, teased, you know, horrible things written on my locker, you know, beat up a few times because of my skin color and, and where I was born at. So when I got older, I thought that, you know, I, I may have something to give back to folks. And I think that was the original sense of why I went into this field was because I thought, boy, I'm okay now. At least that's what I thought in my early 20s was like I survived that and I've got some, a story to share. Maybe I can use that as a bond and a connection with people. And that's how it started for me is why I went into this field. It's, it's interesting you thought that you were ready in your early 20s when you just told us it takes till you're 25 to all the Lego blocks are in place. Well, it's funny you say that. And it's true. At 25, I had, one, I had this epiphany of, man, I've been really out to lunch and I really need to start working on myself. I was actually raised really in a family of teachers. I was always into to math and science, and eventually that led me to medical school. In medical school, they really encourage you to keep an open mind, right? Try everything. That's kind of a part of it. So I actually started on psychiatry, my first rotation of my third year. I was here at Ohio State for med school, stayed for residency, and so got great experience, got to see a lot of things, you know, rotated over here at Talbot and really liked East Hospital, really liked, um, you know, the, the patient population and the staff. I often think of it as a confluence of circumstances that gave me the exposure. But more than anything, the patients and the patient population, I definitely felt like it was an underserved population. It were you know, people who needed help and wanted help and found very few places to get the help they needed. Our goal is to expand our outreach and expand the types of services we can offer people. A big part of what I do is try to expose medical students and residents and fellows to this field so that, you know, they can have maybe that same aha moment if, if it's going to happen. So in fact, Julie, you really are a teacher. Right, exactly. <laughs> so I think that's the goal of this Alcohol and Drug Awareness Week is you're really trying to teach the community at large about what's happening in your field. So, you know, you mentioned what you did last May in the height of the lockdown, but what other kind of things is Ohio State doing right now to reach out to the community to educate? Absolutely. For a long time, the treatment community has had a very narrow front door, right? Like you had to access basically Talbot Hall. And what we're trying to do is make it so that people who need help can access the system from wherever they are, right? The community knows if you need help, go to an emergency room. But traditionally, that hasn't been a place where you could really get addiction help. And so, um, you know, transforming it to a, a place that does get you on the path to recovery 
you know, working with the hospital medicine teams, primary care, um, you know, again, wherever the patient is, you should be able to access that help to the point that, you know, the, the emergency room here at East actually has printed signs at the front desk and in like the restroom areas to say, hey, do you need help for addiction? Ask us, we can help. And, you know, advertising that kind of help really is a novel thing for, you know, an emergency department. Um, You know, we've got, we've been using peer supporters, which is sort of a a newer um, phenomenon or a newer certification uh, for people in recovery um, who have lived experience with either addiction or mental health struggles to then go be able to share those struggles with others and and help others through those struggles because they've been through it themselves. So along with that, we at Talbot Hall with, you know, the backing of Ohio State University have quietly been working on expanding our outpatient services. I'm really excited to share with you that um, this fall, we're looking to launch our residential treatment center Uh, At Talbot Hall, it will be a 30-day residential program with uh, 15-bed capacity. And and I'm excited for that for many reasons, one of which is that a lot of times when individuals come and they want help, there's a a gap in treatment, I, I believe, within our community of giving them some time to kind of orient themselves, to kind of get their bearings uh, to have someone come and get, you know, three days of withdrawal management and then go out into the community trying to make ends meet, it's tough. 30 days is a good beginning. But I also think that that also is, is a good step in the right direction. But I also want to share with you of a vision that, you know, Dr. Teeter and I are working with the university, which is to look beyond even that 30-day stay is to look at what happens next, right? So when you're done with that 30 days, some individuals, not all, some may need longer term care. And we are actively working on a plan for a six month stay for individuals. There's no cure for substance use. There's a hefty amount of recovery where you can get your life back on track and you you can really enjoy life again. But that comes with actively working a recovery program. And that's about not just saying, well, I'm not going to use, because that's some misconception that some folks have is, well, as long as I'm not using, then I'm in recovery. That's not true. We need to educate people and teach them. And that teaching takes time. Do people become hopeless in the midst of this challenge? People, I, I share this, they're often beaten down by the time they come to my doorsteps, the society's rejected them. Often they've rejected themselves. It's an immense amount of energy that it takes just to say, hi, I need to go get some help. And even within our own organization, there are folks that they'll say, well, Susie's been in our program six times. You know, gosh, it's like this revolving door. What's the point of it, right? Family members do that a lot. And I'm like, 
Yeah, but do you know how much work it takes the fourth or fifth or seventh time for them to pick up the phone and say, Dag, I need help. So, yeah, I don't want them to feel beaten. I want them to feel welcomed because they made that tough decision yet again to say, okay, I'm going to try this again. So I look at it as like every time you come back, yeah, and this hopefully is the time. It sounds like cliche, Karen and Rick, but it's not. The only way you're going to do this is to break down that barrier, one for the person and also for society to say, hey, these people are human beings. They're not just, you know, the wasted of the world. They're human beings. They didn't choose this. They didn't grow up saying, oh, well, this is what I want to be when I grow up. Along those lines, we always talk about being in recovery. You're never really cured, are you? Right. You're in recovery. Right, exactly. Let me give you one example here from a long time ago. I I was working with this kid. He'd been in multiple, multiple treatments. And the the family was, you know, very affluent. They could afford to send this young man to multiple treatments. Of course, you know, his natural pattern is to come here and, and do what he's done for the past 14 other treatment places that he'd been to, which is he would come, do well, and then start using and it was, and I said to this individual, I said, you know what, I'm not going to give up on you. And it doesn't matter what you do, what happens, you're in this and we're in this together. And he went about to doing what he was doing and he would relapse and the parents would be really upset. And it came to a point where the parents were ready to pull him out. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not giving up. I'm still with you on this. We've come to a place where your parents are feeling like there's no more hope. And he got up really angry and walked out the door and slammed the door on his way out. And I found him in the bathroom. He was on the floor. When he saw me, he started bawling. And he said, I'm just smothered. I'm in so much pain. I'm so sick of this. I just don't know what to do. And I said, well, my friend, this is the first day right here with what you're doing with me of how we're going to get you back on track together. And he's bawling. And when he's bawling, now I'm bawling because I'm a human being and I see the suffering and the pain this kid's been in. The parents were looking at that as a failure, that you have failed this program. You have failed another one. And I was like, you're not a failure. This is part of recovery is on going through this together. So the fact that I held on to him and he acknowledged and opened himself up in the bathroom in that moment, I can tell you now, this is now about a decade later, he's a very, very well-respected lawyer in the community. And And his life is back. And he's engaged, soon to be married. That's wonderful. As Mohammed was speaking, I'm really struck by the amount of black and white thinking that can go on in addiction, right? You're either in active addiction or you're in recovery. And there, there's a lot of gray there. We're, we're much more forgiving of other chronic processes. And when people have to come in and out of the hospital for diabetes, heart failure, etc., we don't say to them, uh, you know, you're a failure, you, um, you know, you're not allowed to come back. You've, you know, you've exhausted your resources here. But that is the, uh, you know, a big part of historically what, what the thinking on addiction is. People with addiction internalize that stigma 
And it's like another barrier to get them to come to treatment, which can be really difficult. I think that's why this week is so important and what you're doing right now in the community is so important to try to have that kind of compassion. I mean, addiction seems to cross over between being a physical problem and kind of a, a, a mental illness problem. Am I right? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Karen, you know, that was uh, really well said and probably most important this week. I mean, it's hard to get around that feeling and they have a choice and they failed you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I guess what I'll, I'll say about that is, you know, addiction, uh, what does make it maybe different from other chronic diseases is the effect on the family and friends, right? right. Like that, that is something that, that can be, you know, so damaging to relationships. Um, you know, drugs, drugs rewire your survival hardwiring and, and make it so that the person with addiction thinks the only, the only important thing is continuing to use and, and that it can be very destructive. And so families need support during this time as well. Um, you know, it's not just the person, right? All right. So my question is what it does to a family and what it does to a community. And it seems, you know, you're always in active recovery, but that means a family is also always in active recovery, right? You know, I think that really gets at the theme of the podcast series, right? Like you need to take care of yourself to develop your own resilience, right? And so, um, you know, you can't always 100% of the time on every day be there for someone else if you are not, you know, there for yourself. And I think for families to reach out and ask for help and be willing to be vulnerable in that as well. We've talked from a, a patient's perspective, someone that's actively using, but it impacts every surface that that individual touches and it's got a ripple effect. You can't just treat the patient and not treat the family because often when they're going home out of your treatment, guess where they're going? Back to the mom and dads, back to the husband and wives. And they also need to be heard. The family members are hurt. They are destroyed often. You know, they come and they're so angry. You have to tell them it's okay, first of all, for you to be angry. There's, there's just reason for you to be angry, but let's talk and figure out what you want to do with that anger now. And at the same time, work along with that other person that's actively using and saying, this has also impacted your loved ones. Let's talk about how this is impacting them. So it's a, a really rich program is going to deal with the person, but also the family members. That is really, really well said and very important message for this week. I only have a few minutes, but I want to ask you one other thing. Does someone dealing with this challenge, they feel it's with them all the time, right? Yeah. With time, obviously the goal is that it's not the center of their life, but it is always something that is in the background and it can come to the forefront, you know, particularly during stressful times, but also during good times. Good and bad things will happen no matter what over the course of your life and having a strategy for what you're going to do and who you're going to 
uh, call, who you're going to lean on when when good or bad things happen, um, you know, I think is a part of that recovery process. Julie and Mohamed, you're wonderful people. What a gift, both to Ohio State University and this community and to the field. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and sharing these challenges during this week. Really appreciate it. It's been our pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having us. Take care. To learn more about Talbot Hall, or if you or a loved one are facing challenges with alcoholism and addiction, call 614-257-3760. Voices of Resilience is produced by the marketing engineers at the shipyard in collaboration with the Ohio State University Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health. To listen to our whole series, visit us at VoicesOfResiliencePodcast.com or on Spotify, Google, and Apple Play. As I keep saying, we were recently named by Adweek as the best podcast in the nation during the pandemic. So many thanks to our award-winning team, Mike Long, Kate Masters, Coop Studios, and while this is being published during the week of Awareness for Alcoholism Addiction, we are recording this on my anniversary to my favorite co-producer, co-host, 38 years, my partner, Karen Millenthal. Thanks for joining us.